This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 7, Henri Bergson and the Revolt Against Positivism. Today we're going to talk about time, again. <laughs> um, and I, I want to start you back with Nietzsche's eternal recurrence, that term about which there's no general agreement what he means. And I want to... I want you to think about it potentially as a kind of eternal continuity, as a flow. This, this ever-going flow as a dimension of time, as the essence of time. A kind of metaphor of a river in which you're always moving and there's always a, a connection between past and present. You never get a clean break. Um. A similar idea of time is going to be the topic of today's lecture. So you'll see now as we kind of move forward, I talked to you a bit about how the tension between subjectivity, the self, and the notion of the self and its relationship to the world, and telos, the idea of history moving towards a certain direction, that tension stays all the way through modernity. And now I want you to think not just about telos and subjectivity, but about something closely related to both, and that's temporality. Yeah, how we think about time, timeness. Um, when you start thinking about it, it starts seeming kind of less self-evident than one might have thought. And you'll see as we move forward that in various ways, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, Lenin, Bergson, all of these people are going to be preoccupied with time, with an understanding of time, how it works, what it means, how it moves. Um, this will also be related to that distinction between being and becoming that was crucial to the Romantics, it was crucial for Hegel, um, is crucial for Nietzsche in different ways. You have to create, you have to act. It's not what you are, it's what you're going to do. And this idea of transformation of movement, of not, not time is not static, but as becoming. Um, so I want you to think about the relationship between temporality and how it relates both to telos, to historical direction, and how it relates to subjectivity. Um, and there are various ways we can think about temporality and distinctions in temporality. Um, when, at the very beginning of the course, when I talked about what is modernity, I talked about it as a shift from a cyclical notion of time, a kind of circular notion of time that was focused on the seasons, that was focused on holidays, on time moving in a circle, a cycle, a cyclical notion of time, and a linear notion of time, time having a direction. Um, and it's that dominance of the linear notion of time that is one of the defining aspects of modernity. It's one of the ways we think about, in European history, the break between pre-modernity and modernity. So one way to think about temporality is to think about the relationship between the cyclical and the linear. Another way to think about temporality um, is what we talked about when I, I tried to get you to commune with Hegel, time as moving steadily versus time as moving in a kind of agitated, jumpy way, where you go, dun-da-dun-da-dum, boom. 
that, that's not a great example, but you know what I mean. <laughs> there's like, there's steady movement versus a slowing down, speeding up, slowing down, speeding up. Um, like my, my kids when I couldn't get them to learn to jog at a steady pace with me. Um, so there's the linear versus the cyclical, there's the steady versus the jumpy, there's the, the floundering versus the directional, um, which, which speaks to teleology. Is time moving in a certain direction? Is there an arrow? Is there a destination? Or is it just kind of meander here and there? And then there's, there's the dimension that's going to be most essential to Bergson, and that's the continuous versus the discrete. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that um, in a few minutes, but I want you to put it in your head now. Time as continuous versus time as discrete, and that's going to operate on a mathematical analogy, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, but let me, um, let me first go back and tell you a little bit about Andre Bergson. Um, who was born in 1859, which was the same year that Charles Darwin published Origin of the Species. Um, he's 15 years younger than Nietzsche, and he is part of a triumvirate of thinkers, all of whom were born within several years of each other, who are going to be rebels against positivism. Um, and Bergson is the first, and then we'll talk about Freud, and we'll talk about Husserl. And the three of those guys who were all born, you know, roughly within the same five to ten years um, are all going to revolt against positivism. They're going to revolt against this aspect of the Enlightenment legacy in very different ways. Um, but let me remind you a little bit about positivism. That this enlightened, one of the things about the Enlightenment legacy is this idea about how knowledge operates, how knowledge is collected, how we understand the world that go goes under this rubric of positivism. And when I say that, I basically mean this idea that comes to us from enlightenment rationality, from understanding all of life on the model of the hard sciences, that knowledge should be based on empirical sense experience. Yeah. Knowledge should work like the way knowledge is acquired in a laboratory, the way you, trust, you, you test theories of gravity, you have a ball, you drop it, you know, it lands on the floor, you have it again, you let go of it, what happens, does it float up, does it land on the floor? You're looking at empirical sense experience. You're looking at things that are really happening. You're looking at the concrete, at the material, at the factual. It's a turn away from metaphysics. And again, everyone has their own, all these philosophers have their own definitions of metaphysics. But in general, this, you know, that which is beyond the physical, tangible realm. So we turn away from that in enlightenment. Knowledge is what we can see, taste, touch, and smell. What we can observe, what we can count, what we can calculate. Um, so there's a kind of mood to positivism, which again is not... I mean, a lot of people are going to find it depressing, but it was not intended to be depressing. Um, it's a kind of cold rationality. You know, not necessarily in a kind of, you know, icy, creepy way, but just in a kind of like, there is such a thing as objective knowledge, we can observe it and count it. Um, there's a materialism to it, a kind of anti-metaphysical, anti-idealism element. Okay. Um, Bergson was, like many of these thinkers, he was a cosmopolitan type. 
Um, he, was, he was a Jew, which will become significant because he is going to be in France when Nazi Germany attacks. Um, he was born in Paris. His father was a Polish Jew. His mother was a British Jew. And he begins, like various of these thinkers, and um, perhaps most importantly, Husserl, when we get to him, he begins as a mathematician. And there's going to be a kind of mathematics analogy that's very important here. Um, he was arguably the most important French philosopher of the first part of the 20th century. He was one way to understand Bergson, to kind of get into his way of thinking, is that he's a thinker who likes to think in dualities. Um, the structuralist, when they come along, are going to be like this, too. He likes to think A versus B, C versus D. Um, he likes to look at these overarching distinctions, the continuous versus the discrete, quantity versus quality, science versus philosophy, materialism versus metaphysics. Um, he likes to, like, his way of thinking kind of begins with making these kinds of distinctions. Um, and one of the first and most essential ones he's going to make is quality versus quantity. And he is not going to do the thing that Hegel does, which is focus on how quantity turns into quality. He's going to talk about how certain realms of life can be captured through a quantitative way of thinking, and other realms of life require a qualitative way of thinking, and that these are two fundamentally different ways of thinking. In all of Bergson's dualities, they're never absolute in the sense that we're always going to end up needing both things. One thing in each pair is always going to be privileged, he's going to like it better, he's going to think it gives us more profound depth, etc. but we're always going to need both. We're not going to be throwing things away. Um. He's a literary writer. He's very fond of metaphor. Um, he's not as lyrical as Nietzsche. He's not as fun to read as Nietzsche. And it, it's, it's, he's always been one of the thinkers for whom it's been most difficult for me to pick a short passage that really gets at the things that I want you to get at. Um, but one way to try to understand his not very easy but also not totally cold and dry prose is that he thinks in metaphors. So he's always looking for metaphors. Um, he tends to posit his ideas as opposed to prove them. Um, he begins, and there's a kind of Oedipal Rebellion element to this, he begins as somebody who is profoundly influenced by positivism, who comes out of that tradition. Um, most importantly, he comes out of, um, out of the work of Herbert Spencer born in 1820, dies in 1903, who is, was one of the great positivist thinkers who believed that the only solid knowledge was to be found in the sciences, um, who was a utilitarian in terms of ethics. That means you act in such a way that brings the greatest good to the greatest number. You make your decisions on practical grounds. Um, he was somebody concerned with evolution who believed that direct adaptation to environmental constraints is the cause of biological changes. He was an Enlightenment thinker in the sense that, yes, the human condition is perfectible. We move towards equilibrium. Um, evil and immorality will eventually disappear because we're rational creatures, you know, and we will structure things in a better and better way. His major works slightly predate those of, of Darwin. Um, he's a direct product of Enlightenment scientism. And 
Bergson is immersed in this, this is his intellectual origins, and then he revolts against it completely. This is a theme in general. There are lot, lots of moments of this kind of Oedipal revolt, not necessarily against one's biological father, but against a kind of intellectual tradition you're coming from. Um, he's going to reject, in particular, what he will keep calling the mechanistic assumptions of positivism. The idea that human life can be understood the way you understand machines, the way parts fit together. The, way, the idea that, you know, that life can be understood the way natural phenomenon can be understood in terms of physics, in terms of masses and motions. He's going to rebel against these naturalistic explanations, not because he doesn't think natural science is real, but because he thinks there are these other dimensions to life that it cannot capture. Um, and his, his first point of revolt, and in a way the most foundational, against Spencer in particular, and against positivism more generally, and really, you know, the Enlightenment thinking still more generally, is the idea that you can understand time on an analogy to space. That you can somehow cut it up into, into different quantifiable calculated elements that you can cut it up into pieces, into seconds, into minutes, into instants, into numerical units. He's going to reject this notion of time. He's going to reject this kind of mathematical notion of time that says just like you can measure space you know, in inches and in meters, well, he's on the metric system, he's in Europe, but like <laughs> the way you can measure space in kilometers and meters, in millimeters, the way you can quantify those measurements, the way you can draw boundaries, said we use that, we project that understanding of space onto time. And that's a misunderstanding because time cannot be understood in quantitative terms the way Spencer understood it, it can only be understood in qualitative terms. That these quantitative terms give time no continuity because it assumes that there are discrete units. You know, and so the, the beginning assumption is that we borrow, our understand, we borrow from our understanding of space the way we understand time. And this quantifiable model is appropriate for space, but it is not appropriate for time. What we need in order to grasp time is an understanding of time as our experience of time. So here you see the element of subjectivity injected. That what time really is, is our experience of time. And that is not quantitative. It is dynamic, it is irreversible, it is continuous. It cannot be broken up into units and counted and divided. We have to think about space in a radically different way from the way we think about time. Um, time is not measurable and divisible in the same way that space is. Um, he's going to use the phrase durée Say time is durée, time is duration. Which again, is, doesn't work quite as well in English as apparently it works in French. I'm not even sure it's the best word for the thing he's trying to get. But time is duration, it's a flow. It's a flow, it's not a point. 
It can't be separated into points. It can't be represented the way points are put on a line. And he's now going to make this distinction between the measurable and the non-measurable and the countable and the non-countable that I, I think must come from the distinction you make in mathematics and calculus between the continuous and the discrete. Um, and I think even more specifically um, coming from Georg Kantor, um, who was actually somebody who was very close to Husserl and a mentor for Husserl, um, but perhaps has more direct relevance. We talk about Bergson. And so Kantor was a mathematician in Germany. And he comes up with something in 1878 called the continuum hypothesis in set theory. Now, I, I talk to you about this with much trepidation because my understanding of math is not great. You know, and I have read a lot about the continuum hypothesis. I've spoken with mathematicians about the continuum hypothesis because there's a moment which it becomes very important also to linguists and to philosophers. You know, and so I wanted to get my head around it, but I don't want to mess up the actual math. Um, but in, in the simplest form, it has to do with set theory about different kinds of infinity. You know, what does infinity mean? This is a pet topic of my 13-year-old son who since toddlerhood has been fascinated by this idea of infinity, like how many seconds are there in infinity? But the basic idea is there's the infinity in set theory that is, say, the set of all integers, one, two, three, four, five, right? Keeps going on indefinitely. And then there is the infinity that is the set of all points on the number line. So those of you who are actually STEM people will know this much better than I do. The set of all points on the number line in which between, say, one and two and two and three, there are this infinite number of points because there aren't any gaps in a number line, right? Like, you're not nod to me if this is making sense because I realize my talking about math is sort of like, uh, you know, already I'm on shaking ground. So there's the infinity that's a set of all points on the number line, and there's the infinity that's a set of all integers. And the continuum hypothesis deals with the fact that there's no set whose cardinality is strictly between one or the other. Um, the important thing here is the distinction between the set of what is discrete, what is separated from each other, one, two, three, and what is continuous what encompasses everything between one and two and between two and three. Does that, that kind of make sense? Okay. Okay, so this is, this is the crucial thing for Bergson. He says that we think about space as something that is discrete, you know, as something that is countable, whereas time cannot be grasped that way. Time is not like the set of all integers. Time is like the set of all the points on the interline. Uh, on the number line. It keeps going. There are no gaps. You can't create a gap. If you try to cut through it, he says it's like putting a knife through a flame. You can't cut through time that way. You can't stop it. There can't be a gap and then you start it. The borders don't work. So this is, this is the central concept for Bergson this idea of time is continuous. And he will keep coming back to it his whole career from all different directions and describe it in different ways. But basically, it's the idea of the continuous versus the discrete, um, the measurable versus the non-measurable. And I'll, I'll give you some of his quotes. Um, this kind of multiplicity of conscious states is not at all like the discrete multiplicity which goes to form a number. 
Um, this kind of the multiplicity of conscious states is a qualitative multiplicity. In short, he says, we must admit two kinds of multiplicity, the one qualitative and the other quantitative. Um, now he's all of his other distinctions that form the core of his philosophy basically are variations and analogies and surround this continuous, discrete, quantitative, qualitative that he looks at time and space. He's going to say space is associated with inert objects, with things that, that are not animate, are not alive. Time is associated with consciousness. So again, he's this very, in order to grasp subjectivity, you have to grasp temporality. Time is associated with consciousness. He's going to use metaphors about, he's going to use a lot of music metaphors. He's also going to use a lot of melting metaphors, flame metaphors, like you can't pass the knife through the flame. But this idea of melting, and he'll say a close psychological analysis distinguishes a duration whose heterogeneous moments permeate one another. So this idea of permeation. You know, things filling up all the spaces, there being no gaps, whose heterogeneous moments permeate one another. Below the numerical multiplicity of conscious states, a qualitative multiplicity. Be below the self with well-defined states, a self in which succeeding each other means melting into one another and forming an organic whole. So think about this melting. You know, think about like, you could cut up pieces of cheese to like, uh, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna use a very like mother-like analogy. So like you make a grilled cheese sandwich for your kid, right? Okay, so you're cutting, up the, like, you're cutting up the pieces of cheese and then you put the different pieces on the bread and there are gaps between the cheese, right? Because you've cut them up and then you've put them on the bread. And, um, and then you cook it and then the cheese all melts into one another or there are no more gaps. Okay, this is like, this is what Bergson's trying to say with his melting into one another. There are no gaps. There are no, there are no hard boundaries. Time, he says, is not consecutive, it's continuous. The concept is one of wholeness. And so you also get elements of, of this Hegelian longing for wholeness. The sense that what our lives are fragmented um, this fragmentation is a form of alienation. In order to overcome alienation, we need an understanding of wholeness. We need a way to reach wholeness. Okay. Um, the, the past, there's a, always a kind of virtual coexistence between the past and the present. Um, there's always a kind of past living on in the present and future being in some ways anticipated, but in particular, the past living on in the present. Um, now, here is, here is where we get the really tricky philosophical move, which is the biggest leap you have to make for Bergson. For all of these philosophers, there's some moment of a leap where you have to just kind of go with them at some point, even if it seems they can't exactly prove it. Um, and this, this is the critical kind of leap for Bergson, what I'm about to tell you now. It's what I've tried to give to you in your reading, and it's very, it's, it's, uh, there's nowhere where he says it quite clearly enough, but I think the, the passage I gave you is as clear as we can get. What he wants to do is make the connection between time as continuous and free will. He wants to say, he wants to inject free will and the resulting contingency. So this anti-teleological notion of time, 
This idea that the future is not moving in a certain direction, it is open. It is open depending on what we choose. So this contingency being the opposite of determinism, there are always multiple possibilities. Accident is going to play a role, choice is going to play a role. You know, he wants to prove free will. Kant just posits free will, right? I mean, Kant, who generally likes to prove things, he gets to morality and he says, listen, you can't prove free will, but we need it. If we don't have it, we've got no morality, we can't function without morality, I'm just gonna say it's there. Um, and he just says it's there. Bergson is trying to kind of prove it. And he's going to say that that free will is inextricably yoked to this idea of time as qualitative multiplicity. And this is where his proof gets a little tricky, and I'll keep trying to circle back to it um, in a couple ways. Because he's going to say that it's our qualitative experience of time that gives rise to free acts, which are spontaneous and cannot be determined in advance. That. <sighs> Pure duration, he says, is the form in which the succession of our conscious states assumes when our ego lets itself live, when it refrains from separating its present state from its former states. We can thus conceive of succession without distinction and think of it as a mutual penetration and interconnection and organization of elements, each one of which represents the whole and cannot be distinguished or isolated from it except by abstract thought. This continuing free self is present through the flow of time. And this dynamic flow is a kind of precondition for this self with free will. You need this dynamism, you need this movement in order for the self to be self-determining in its becoming. And I'll try to keep circling back to this a couple ways because it always seems to me he doesn't really quite prove this. He suggests it. He has an intuition that these two things are inextricably linked. Um, this is going to climax in, in a polemic he has with Einstein um, in the early 20th century. Well, where he tries to make this connection through a critique of relativity theory in which he's going to say that Einstein is, is thinking about time as instants and really time as flows. Okay, um, but let me, let, me try to, let me try to get at this for some different directions. In his 1907 book, which comes after Time and Free Will, Creative Evolution, he's going back to the same themes. Um, he's again starting off with an attack on Spencer the false evolutionism of Spencer, he says, which consists in cutting up the present reality already evolved into little bits no less evolved and then recomposing it with these fragments, thus positing in advance everything that is to be explained. So you see, Bergson really doesn't like when things are cut up and put into boxes. He doesn't like cutting. Like, it's not his thing. He doesn't like these absolute breaks. Um, and now in creative evolution, he's going to make distinctions between the solid and the fluid, between matter and life, between the inert and the animate. Um, and what creative evolution is, it's a long essay that's refuting two related things. And he's going to call those things mechanism and finalism. 
By finalism, he just means teleology, de determinism. The idea that life is moving towards a given telos. His idea about that is just a variation, really, of what we've already heard. Telos being this Aristotelian concept that Hegel uses, that Marx uses. Um, the clearest metaphor, I think, is the apple seed metaphor. Like that apple, which is obviously there's no apple in the apple seed, but that apple seed is not going to turn into a pineapple. Like it's like that, the, the eventual apple is already like hardwired, pre-programmed into that apple seed. That's telos. Um, so he's going to, half of this energy is going to be devoted to refuting finalism. Um, and then part of it is going to be refuting something that is related, which he calls mechanism. And mechanism is this enlightenment idea that kind of is exactly what, what it sounds like it is. The idea that nature works like a machine in which all the parts fit together. And we, we, we can understand the whole through understanding the parts. So think of, I'm, you'll, you'll also see I'm very bad with fixing anything, I'm very bad with machines, so I'm on very shaky ground here. Again, think of a bicycle, think of a car, think of a scooter, think of a toaster oven, you know, th um, think of a jack-in-the-box. Like there, you know, there are springs, there are, are are levers, there are wheels, there are gears. You know, you can tell I've never put anything together, but like, but you know what I'm talking about. Like there's screws. All of those parts work together in a mechanical way. It's not, there's no mysticism about it. You know, you don't need like someone to come and like wave a magic wand, like there's some logical material way in which all those parts fit together. So mechanism is his critique of wh why we cannot understand life the way we understand how a bicycle works. Um, mechanism, mechanistic thinking for him sees, it sees details, it sees positions, it sees numbers, it sees order. Um, it, it understands the world like a machine with component functions and individual functions that can theoretically be isolated from one another in order to be later combined. You know, so you could just focus on how the gears work in the bicycle or how that, how I don't know how the handlebars work or how the wheels work and then ultimately you kind of put it all together. Okay. And he says, mechanism fails to truly grasp the whole. It can only grasp the parts and it's an impoverished way of understanding the whole because it's really just derivative of the parts. Okay. And then finalism is just this kind of teleology determinism that, there's, that the plan of where we're going has already been preconceived from the beginning. And it's obvious why he doesn't like that because any time you have too much determinism, too much finalism, too much teleology, then you're getting less free will, less contingency. And he really wants a space for this free will. Um, he doesn't want to assume that nature is like a shoemaker who already has a vision of how the shoe is going to look when he starts out. That's not how life works for me. Um, he says, how should we really understand evolution? Evolution is pluridimensional. Evolution goes off in multiple directions. There are always multiple possibilities. Movement happens through division. It happens because things break up. You see a kind of precursor to postmodernism here. Life doesn't have a single course. Um, he makes the analogy between a cannonball and an artillery shell. Again, I'm on shaky ground here because you, I don't know much about this. But you fire a ball from a cannon and it's one thing, it goes to one place. 
whereas an artillery shell, like an explosive projectile or a cluster bomb, it goes off and then pieces are all over the place. You know, and then there are multiple effects going on simultaneously. So he says that nature is more like, a, life is more like an explosive projectile that burst into fragments. There's a generative force of life, which he calls the Ilan Vital, which various philosophers have used. It's just the idea of a life force. There's a life force that he believes we have in us. You know, that we're here, we wanna do something, we wanna act. We're creative beings. Um, Evolution, he says, doesn't take place according to this pre-planned program. It takes place along divergent lines. Life, he considers, this life force acts on inert matter. We bring things to bear. We shake things up. We move things around. Um, he also uses a metaphor of childhood. He says, you know, okay, a baby's born, there's a child. The child has an indivisible personality. The child is a real subject here and now. But that personality, that being, that self, could go off in all sorts of different directions. It's not predetermined, and it's not predictable in advance. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, because you need space for that kind of, that kind of creative growth. Life, he says, is, is choice. It's ceaseless choice. It's continual choice. So he uses this idea of choice of decision in the strong sense of the existentialists are going to use it, decisionism. Um, okay. So this, this basic life force that is acting on life, um, that life that has no a priori plan, not all movement is forward and not all movement is unidirectional. Things can go off in all sorts of directions. We must recognize, he says, that all is not coherent in nature. Okay, now one of his later texts, which is what I've given you an excerpt of, Duration and Simultaneity, comes back again to this idea of time. It's a polemic he has with Einstein, which is a very interesting topic. For those of you who know something about physics, you might wanna look into this later. I had a great student a few years ago who did a senior essay about the polemic between Bergson and Einstein. Um, but if you don't get Einstein, don't worry, you can still get what I want you to get from this reading. This idea that, Einstein is measuring the relativity of time through instance. Time has to be flow. Time has to be flow because that is the only way we can inject it with free will and contingency. Duration, he says, is essentially a continuation of what no longer exists into what does exist. This is real time. This is how time is perceived. And here he says that when we, if we mistakenly think about time the way we think about space, and we think, we think about the past as something that can be carved up, there is no way, he says, to impose that kind of understanding on the past without subliminally projecting that kind of understanding onto the future, as if everything that is unfolded but has not projects onto the future what is yet to be unfolded as if it were already there and we just can't see it yet, which is what he doesn't, he doesn't want it to already be there. He wants it to be in motion. 
Okay, so I'll, I'll read you a couple quotes. He says, listen to a melody with your eyes closed, thinking of it alone, no longer juxtaposing on paper or an imaginary keyboard, notes which you thus preserved one for the other, which then agreed to become simultaneous and renounce their fluid continuity in time to congeal in space. You will rediscover undivided and indivisible the melody or the portion of the melody that you have replaced with impure duration. Now our inner duration, considered from the first to the last moment of our conscious life, is something like this melody. Our attention may turn away from it and consequently from its indivisibility, but when we try to cut it, it is as if we suddenly passed a blade through a flame. We are dividing the unfolded, not the unfolding. We cannot divide the unfolding of time, this uninterrupted solidarity of the before and after that is given in consciousness as an indivisible fact. Real time, he says, is thick, it has no instance. Um, and then there's this long passage that I put on your handout where he says the spatializing of time dissolves contingency and with it our creative agency. And he says, we cannot convert into space the time already elapsed without treating all of time the same way. The act by which we usher the present into space spreads out the future there without consulting us. To be sure, this future remains concealed from us by a screen. But now we have it there all complete, given along with the rest. Indeed, what we have called the passing of time was only the steady sliding of the screen and the gradually obtained vision of what lay waiting globally in eternity. Let us then take this duration for what it is for a negation, a barrier to seeing all steadily pushed back. Our acts themselves will no longer seem like a contribution of unforeseeable novelty. They will be part of the universal weave of things given at one stroke. We do not introduce them into the world. It is the world that introduces them ready-made into us, into our consciousness as we reach them. Yes, it is we who are passing when we say time passes. It is the motion before our eyes which moment by moment actualizes a complete history given virtually. Such, he says, is the metaphysics imminent in the spatial representation of time. That's what we have to reject. That's all that's subliminally present when we spatialize time. Real duration, he says, is experienced. We learn that time unfolds, and moreover, we are unable to measure it without converting it into space and without assuming all that we know of it to be unfolded. But it is impossible, he says, to mentally spatialize only a part. You know, and this is, this is the tricky move. The act once begun by which we unfold the past and thus abolish real succession involves us in a total unfolding of time. Inevitably, we are then led to blame human imperfection for ignorance of a future that is present. That is the key passage. Um, Again, it seems to me he posits there more than he proves, but it's on your handout. So like, I think that is as clear as he ever gets in trying to make this argument about the connection between free will, contingency, um, and the continuity of time. Okay, um, I wanna tell you just a couple more things in the last 10 minutes. The, the last of these distinctions that he likes to make that I want you to know is between intellect on the one hand and what he will sometimes refer to as instinct or in its more sophisticated form, intuition, on the other hand. 
So this, you know, intellect versus instinct. We need both of them, but one is superior to the other. Intellect, he says, is intended to think inert matter. Intellect is appropriate for a certain kind of rational positivistic thinking that thinks about material things. So when he's anti-mechanism, he doesn't mean that you know, we should get rid of all the bicycles. Like, I mean, it's like our intellect that allows us to look at how the parts of a bicycle fit together and think about them in terms of parts going into a hole, that's fine for a bicycle. It's fine for some things. You know, those are not the things he finds most exciting or more, most profound, but they're important. They're not trivial. So intellect is intended to think matter. It thinks inert matter. It sees and analyzes in pieces and parts in what is separable. It sees and analyzes in components. You see in Bergson this, like, also what you see in Hegel, this longing for wholeness. You know, this, like, uh, this being drawn to what could be seamless, you know, and what still has seams as being somehow inferior. Um, intellect, he says, functions via representation. Um, it's what's easier for us to deal with. He says we are at ease only in the discontinuous, in the immobile, in the dead. The intellect, he says, is characterized by a natural inability to comprehend life. Intellect is connected with space with that kind of discrete thinking that's connected with space. It's a kind of external analytical perspective. You step back, you observe, you calculate, you measure, you categorize, you deduce. Instinct, on the other hand, and its more sophisticated form, intuition, is a kind of eternal subjective holistic perspective, which is the privileged perspective for Bergson. Um, Instinct, he writes, is molded on the very form of life. While intelligence treats everything mechanically, instinct proceeds, so to speak, organically. If the consciousness that slumbers in it should awake, if it were wound up into knowledge instead of being wound off into action, if it could ask and it could reply, it would give up to us the most intimate secrets of life. Intuition grasps reality, not, it, not representationally, not in parts, but directly from the inside, not symbolically, but vitally and holistically. It apprehends multiplicity, not in pieces, but at a stroke as a whole. It's connected with time. So instinct and intuition are turned in opposite directions, the former towards inert matter, I'm sorry, the former in intellect towards inert matter, and then intuition towards what is organic, towards life. Um, the duality of consciousness requires both intellect and intuition, this kind of double form of the real. Um, Intuition we can think of as a kind of completeness rather than a rejection of intellect. You know, all thinking minds possess intuition. It's one of the things that's special about us as human beings. And if we reject it, we are, and we only embrace the kind of intellect that is connected with mechanism, it's an impoverished way of grasping the world. Mechanism and finality, a kind of exclusive focus on intellect is a way to deprive the world of creativity. 
Um, okay, I want to say I want to say just a couple things on an essay he writes that's very famous and is somewhat on a separate topic um, called Laughter, an essay on the meaning of the comic, which he writes in 1900, which became very important in the creative arts. Um, and I don't have time to dwell on it too much, but I want to at least note it. Um, because he's looking at the function of laughter and he's looking at what is comic. What is funny? What can be made fun of? What can be laughed at? Well, it has to do with what is not self-aware. Behavior that is not self-aware. What is humorous is what is not self-aware. Um, and then what function does laughter have? Well, laughter is going to have a function for Bergson that is going to break up a kind of mechanism. And I want to note this here because it's going to be very close to what Viktor Shklovsky will talk about as, as defamiliarization when we get to modernism. It will be close to what Husserl will talk about when we get to the phenomenological reduction, something that's going to enable us to see more clearly. And so let me just read you a couple quotes from Laughter. He says, so art, whether it be painting or sculpture, poetry or music, has no other object than to brush aside the utilitarian symbols, the conventional and socially accepted generalities. In short, everything that veils reality from us in order to bring us face to face with reality itself. You see this longing all these thinkers have to get at the real to get at life in its essence, to somehow grasp the thing that we're alienated from. In some ways, they're all variations of this bridge problem between subject and object. Okay, one more quote from the laughter book. So, and were all men always attentive to life? Were we constantly keeping in touch with others as well as with ourselves? Nothing within us would ever appear as due to the working of strings or springs. The comic is that side of a person which reveals his likeness to a thing, that aspect of human events which, through its peculiar inelasticity, conveys the impression of pure mechanism, of automatism, of movement without life. Consequently, it expresses an individual or collective imperfection which causes for an immediate corrective. This corrective is laughter. A social gesture that singles out and represses a special kind of absent-mindedness in men and in events. So laughter here comes as a corrective, a kind of antidote to a certain kind of unthinking mechanism. It's life is breaking three, free from this automated mode through laughter. Um, and one, I had a, a fantastic uh, student last year who actually had studied in France to be a clown. She had studied like clown acting, not like silly clown, but like serious clown. Um, and um, she wrote a senior essay on clowning and humor using Bergson and Volodymyr Zelensky's use of humor. So as you probably know, or so many of you may have heard, the Ukrainian president was a, a comedian. I mean, his, he had a former career as a comedian. He is a comic actor. Um, and this is not something that's just a joke, but I think has actually profoundly influenced his response to aggression. Um, and his response to violence and his ability to communicate. Um, and one, maybe I'll just tell you a short anecdote. The last when I, at the beginning of this full-scale invasion, I could not believe how this man with no political experience had risen to the occasion. And my my brother, the the opera composer, um, who doesn't have any particular connection to Ukraine and doesn't speak these languages, he said, "Oh, it doesn't surprise me at all." 
I said, how could it not surprise you? And he said, this is, you know, the, the communication skills he's using now are the communication skills really good comic actors have. You have to be ready to improvise. You, you can't have everything already carved up into boxes. You know, somebody throws something, you've got to be thinking in real time. You've got to be able to move. You've got to be able to choose in real time. And you need that little bit of ironic distance that breaks the mimesis, that breaks the mimesis that would get you sucked into imitating what's coming at you. So all this Russian propaganda was coming at it saying, you know, Ukrainians are Nazis, Ukrainians are Satanists, you know, they are parasites, we're going to exterminate them, we're going to... And Zelensky had this team that was like, look, we have a Jack Russell Terrier who works as a landmine sniffing dog and moonlights as a comfort dog for injured children in hospitals and does yoga and has his own Twitter account. Namaste, everybody. Hi. I mean, and you're responding in a totally different mode, you know. Um, and I, I think there's, I mean, you could, you could, do, a whole, you could do a whole analysis, as my, my student did, looking at Zelensky's communicative response um, to an absolutely gruesome war through Bergson's essay on laughter. Okay, um, I only have one minute left, so let me... Um, um, it, it, it doesn't end so well for Bergson. Um, the Second World War comes... Munich Conference, September 1938, Neville Chamberlain appeases Hitler. September 1st, 1939, Hitler invades Poland. Um, May 1940, Germany invades France. Uh, June 1940, uh, Germany defeats France, occupies northern France, and establishes a collaborationist um, government in the south. Um, Bergson, who was a Jew by birth, was actually, because he was the, arguably the most famous philosopher there at that time, and the Nazis apparently admired his philosophy of vitalism and creative life force, offered him exemption from some of these anti-Semitic laws, but he refuses. He wears the Jewish star. Um, he does not, though, die in the gas chambers. He, um, he dies in 1941 at the age of, of 81, um, allegedly of a, a serious cold that he contracted while waiting in line to register as a Jew, which may or may not be apocryphal. Um, I, I want to I leave you with this idea that, that a living being is the center, and the experience of a living being is the center, because it's going to take us into existentialism. That for Bergson, a living being involves a certain quantity of radical contingency entering the world. Um, for Hannah Arendt, this is what she called natality. She said, a new being comes into the world. It, it's, it is an injection into the world with a kind of radical contingency, could go off in multiple directions, the course of which and the courses of which cannot be foreseen. Okay, I'll, um, I'll see you next week. We'll talk about Lenin. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.